0: This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to Identity In Me, or In Me for short. My guest for this episode is Janessa Burks, who is an educator, an artist, and an activist, among many things. She and I will discuss the multiplicity of her identity and the ways in which she has successfully embraced the various components of who she is. Hey, Titi Nessa. Hey. <laughs> I'm sure you're like, hold on, did he really just start the episode with T.T. Nessa? (laughs) Um, Am I allowed to go with your government?
1: Yes, you are. Yes, you are.
0: Okay, so uh, T.T. Nessa is actually known to the world as Janessa. Um, She's known to me as Janessa as well, Uh, but she uh, is affectionately known to me as T.T. Nessa because she is the aunt to my children. We are not blood related. She's a very close friend of the family. Um, she's an enormously talented individual as well, uh, who I've known for over a decade. I met her in a guidance office when she was a high school senior and I was an admissions representative at her local community college, trying to figure out why a straight A student was only applying to community college. Since then, she has been on quite the journey, which will be discussed during this episode to say that she defies the term static and linear would be an understatement. Uh, I'd be putting it mildly to say that she's comfortable with change. And so here we are today having a discussion about that. And before we get into the meat of the episode, how do you identify?
1: I feel like I have multiple identities and um, I would say that I'm a black multiracial woman. I'm a single mother. I'm an educator, specifically an elementary educator. More recently, um, an artist it's still getting comfortable with saying that and a
0: college graduate and when you say artist what do you mean like are you out there dropping albums you recording <laughs> you got a single
1: well I, I I can sing in the shower but um I, I am a <laughs> I'm a painter
0: listen knowing you um I I say that uh tongue-in-cheek jokingly but I would not be shocked in five years if you were dropping an album like it just would not <laughs> Surprise me. So
1: if I want to do something, I'm gonna do it, but I don't want to drop an album anytime soon.
0: <laughs> for now. For, so for
1: now. now, for now.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but you said you paint.
1: I paint, yes.
0: But how long have you been painting?
1: I started painting in high school and I put my brushes down for about ten years and I picked them back up um maybe two years ago. And since then it's been nonstop. Um I paint primarily with acrylics on canvas, and I focus a lot on um, featuring BIPOC stories of resilience and beauty, things that I feel like were missing from art spaces when I was growing up.
0: Yes, and you also just painted a very beautiful portrait of my family, so dope. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised, I wasn't expecting it at all. Uh, The family brought out the big wooden is it a wooden canvas
1: yes so it's like the first time I've worked on one of those it's it's sturdier it's I don't know it's prettier um it's it's a wood piece and then the front is a gesso board um and that was all your daughter's idea your wonderful
0: daughter's idea right now I'm I'm going back in my mind and thinking about like how I've known you over the years and what I've learned about you. And I remember a birthday party. I don't remember, I think Juvia had turned five or six. I'm, I'm more confident that she was six. And so that would be about nine years ago. And I'm watching you paint faces on kids. And I say to Rose, uh, my partner, I'm like, um, Rose, is she making money doing this? Like she is really talented. And I think I had a conversation with you about it even. Like, hey, uh, you uh, you do this in a lot of different places because these are really impressive designs that you're uh, painting on their faces.
1: A lot of my skills have come about because I needed them at that moment. They just fit. And one of the things was I had a daughter. And I had a daughter at 19. I was getting invited to birthday parties all the time. Yeah. But I was a single mom, a broke mom. And I didn't have money to buy kids' presents every single weekend, so I learned how to face paint. And at least if I showed up at a party, I couldn't bring a gift. And, uh-huh. I face paint. Um, and then that became this great gift that everybody wanted all the time. And I was like, okay, my conscience is clear. My kid came to your party, and I contributed in some way, shape, or form, because I'm broke. And, so how, how does
0: I'm one pretty- even figure out they know how to face paint? Like, you, I mean, so you you're a single mom. You're 19 years old, you get invited to the first few set of parties, and then you're like having a cup of coffee in the morning, and you're like, ah, that's what I'll do. I'm going to face paint.
1: <laughs> no, you have a kid that wants their face painted because everybody else wants their face painted, and you go like, I could do that. I'm not spending $15 on your face. I'll do it for you. And then that becomes something that's exciting that your kid wants to do all the time, and you take it elsewhere, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, I want to rewind a little bit to how you identify. Uh, One of the first things you noted was that you identify as Black and multiracial. For my audience, can you clarify what you mean by multiracial?
1: Okay, so um, I am Black, Native American, French, Irish, and little bits of other things, but primarily Black and white. Um, And I say Black woman because that's how the world sees me. So I will always identify as a black woman for that reason.
0: Did you always identify as a black woman or did that shift at some point?
1: That absolutely shifted. Um, I went through a, most of my life being uncomfortable with saying I was black because I had received so much messaging that I wasn't black enough. Yeah. Um. So I felt like I didn't deserve the right to say that. And it wasn't until more recent years in my identity journey that I became comfortable with saying that. Um, And I do make a note when I'm in the right spaces and the right conversations that when I say I identify as a black woman, I in no means um, feel like I can say that my journey is the same as a dark skinned black woman. I know that my journey has been different. So I'll identify that way and note that I do still have light
0: skin privilege. I'm I'm thinking about um, this matter you brought up of, at one point in your life, feeling as though you weren't Black enough. And so the questions that come to mind for me are, um, have you watched New Jack City? Have you watched Juice? Have you watched Coming to America? There are a series of movies that determine whether or not you are in fact Black enough. Have you watched all of those movies? And if not, how could you have allowed that to happen?
1: Have I watched the movies? Yes. Am I excited about coming to America, too? Yes.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I have. Yeah, Uh, no, so my Black card almost got revoked. Um, It's actually on hold right now because I have not watched New Jack City. I have not watched Harlem Nights. And when I tell other Black people that, it's like a strike against me. And so I have to find time soon to watch those because I have all the other movies watched and just those two make me complete.
1: I mean, I'm sure if somebody went through with a fine tooth comb, there are movies that I haven't watched, but I also was a child that grew up with no cable and not around my black family as much. So a lot of the movies that I watched were during high school and it was like going to friends' houses and watching movies. And then, I mean, I, I'm just not a big movie person.
0: No, in all seriousness, you mentioned being pegged as not Black enough once upon a time. Can you please elaborate on that?
1: So I was raised by my mom, who is white. Um, And although she grew up in, I mean, we were poor. And my mom grew up the same way. So the neighborhoods that I grew up in, I was surrounded by other people of color. my mom doesn't come across as, you know, a Karen or anything like that. So even some of the ways that she navigates the world are different than you would expect from a white woman. Um, So I felt like I was black, but then I would enter circles, especially in educational settings. And I would code switch because that is something I've become very good at throughout the years. And even my mom taught me how to code switch. She does it herself. It was like your business side needs to come out now um and the switch gets flicked on in those settings um a lot of times it would be you talk white you don't count and then if you sound white and you have a white mom then we can really say you don't count yeah. um so that was a lot of what happened it was just you're too white you're you know you're like a reverse oreo or like you are an oreo you're black on the outside, but you are white on the inside. So receiving those messages throughout the years. And then for your listeners, depending on where I am, I don't actually look black. Like if I am in certain areas that I grew up in, we have a huge Latinx population. So immediately it's like, are you Puerto Rican? Are you Dominican? Yeah, (laughs) that throws it (laughs) off too. But Black wasn't something that other people were comfortable with me identifying as. And they let me know that mm. frequently.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about code switching, I immediately thought up an octave. That's what it means to me. So uh, if I'm code switching and I go into a school or any business setting, it's like I go from this tone to hey, how are you? It's, yeah, <laughs> it's so up an octave. Um, and uh, try to slip in some vocabulary words that I've learned over the years. And I do my code switching in a few different places. I uh, do it at work. And then when I communicate with my mother, who is a Haitian immigrant, um, who's not college educated. Uh, and then when I'm home and I'm talking to my girls, you know, I have to go into a different tone. So yeah, code switching is very much a part of uh, my experience. But I want to go back to your journey over the last 12 years, uh, which to me has been uh, truly remarkable. And I'm wondering what precipitated the changes?
1: Well, we can go, we go 13. I was at community college, even though my grades were great. Um, I was paying for it myself. My thought process was through a couple years at community college and transfer. I hated it. I withdrew and I applied to all the schools that I wanted to go to. And right before my acceptance letters rolled in, I found out you're pregnant and dorm rooms aren't a place for a baby. So I shifted and I've been shifting based on what I needed to do ever since. So I had my daughter. I wanted to go back to school needed a job that I could have flexible hours, so I became a hairdresser. From there, I was hairdressing. I was going to school full-time. I continued to go to school full-time until I graduated. Um, I went into teaching. I was teaching in the Worcester Public Schools. The first year, I was teaching in the Worcester Public Schools, and I was still hairdressing um, because my goal was to be a homeowner, and I needed the two incomes. Um, I did that, and I was you know, working in the Worcester Public Schools, and I felt like something's missing. Um, And I pursued a program at Harvard's Graduate School of Education, got my master's. And during that program, I knew I wasn't going to be able to work. So here comes the brushes coming out again, I need another side hustle, I, I can paint, let me pick this up. And I forgot how much I loved it. So I continued painting and let's add artists to the trades and continue. And then um, in education, I I thought I might've wanted to go up to a higher position, but I discovered I really love the classroom. So I am still an elementary education teacher. And on the side, what I do is I, I will participate in different projects that have to do with racial equity, whether it's racial equity in education or racial equity in the arts. And and now I just dabble in a whole bunch of projects on top of teaching and the art.
0: So when I met you in the guidance office at uh, your high school and I looked at your transcript, again, I remember pausing and looking at it and saying, OK, well, I don't want to discourage her from coming to my school. I mean, I. I think my school is a fine school, but if she's only applying to community college, this is a problem. The question for you is, why were you only looking at community college despite, I don't know, being in honors calculus, I think it was, as a senior? And I think I asked you in that moment, why aren't you applying to WPI?
1: Uh, Truthfully, you you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of the problems that we have in education is that there are so many students that are like me that have the potential to go on to great schools, but have a lack of knowledge and a lack of support, quite honestly. And a lot of the time schools expect parents to support children through that journey. But if you're a first gen college student um, and your parents don't know, they can't support you in the way that you need to be supported. So a lot of the messaging for me was around money. And I didn't know that scholarships existed the way they exist now. I mean, and I I finally found them and I received them in college, but I didn't know. So a lot of that was like, how much debt are you willing to take on and how are you going to be able to afford this? Because another misconception that i had was that you were going to need to afford it while you were going through it. and i didn't have family that i could go and say, "hey, can you buy me this $300 unnecessary textbook for this class?" um so for me being a problem solver all the time, it was the the problem is the cost and i don't have it. The problem is the support and i don't have it, but hey, this community college thing i can do. and there weren't many people that were telling me otherwise.
0: So you mean you didn't have like, you weren't in a guidance group or you didn't have a specific college counseling office in your school where the counselor had maybe 30 to 40 students on their caseload and spoke to them extensively about their options for college? Is that what you're saying right now?
1: Mm -hmm. So my guidance counselor actually told me because I wanted to take I wanted to be an engineer for a while and I wanted to take a specific class at our school. Her exact words to me were, well, next year you're going to probably need a, um, a guidance counselor letter of recommendation. And if you take this class, I don't know if I'm going to be able to give you one. Legit? Yes. So wow. not only did she tell me that she wouldn't provide me a guidance counselor letter of recommendation, but she also told me that Worcester State was a reach and I needed a backup.
0: I'm silent because I just can't. Um, I'm floored that that happened. Wow, so hard to pivot from that. I'm angry, actually.
1: I've had I've had years of anger for that. I mean, you. She was talking to a student that was, you know, in almost all honors classes that worked, that was, you know, co-captain of the cheerleading squad, and it involved in a whole bunch of community programs that had, I think, a three-point seven something GPA at that point um, out of a 4.0. So by all means, our state school was not a reach, but that was the messaging that I was being given from the person that I should have been able to turn to. So she very much discouraged me from applying to the schools that I had carefully for months put together on a list with my own research and actual college visits. Like I had managed to go down to Spelman in Atlanta. And um, I had managed to make it to these colleges through other programs and really wanted to get out. And that was stifled very quickly.
0: I wanna make sure that we touch on different parts of your journey here. And so I won't um, belabor this point uh, much longer. Uh, The matter of how students are advised uh, in that um, school system. I can't tell you how many young men I met in the Quincy basketball program who came out of alternative schooling situations. And within a year, year and a half, I'm talking to these young men who I develop a connection with, who strike me as really fine young men who are just misguided. And I asked them, how the hell did you land in in an alternative school? Like, you're not a bad kid. Uh, they came in with bad grades and their grades were a lot better. And there's, uh, there was always a story, you know, like I was disruptive in class and then I was sent to the alternative school. Well, why were you disruptive in class? Uh, Man, my home situation sucked. And so it was just my way of venting. And it has just led me to uh, feel like so many lives may have been derailed by people not asking enough questions or resources not being available enough in the way that they need to be to this population, um, and you know, I'm I'm partnered with one. Like Rose's story is remarkable. I mean, she graduated from an alternative school, and when you walk into this alternative school, the, the, the focus isn't on academics.
1: <laughs> she ended up there not because their grades were bad. <laughs> Because she was a mom and we were friends during that time. And she is so remarkable that she tried to not be at the alternative school. And we were in honors classes together. And I remember looking at her like, oh, my gosh, how can I be more like her? She had a, a child. She was still going to high school. She was in these honors programs or these honors classes. She was working. And she was still getting higher grades on tests than I was. And I remember, like, scratching my head, like, what am I doing wrong? Because I should be able to understand this material better. I want to be more like Rose.
0: All right. So you go from high school to Quincy and then you're a hairstylist. Why didn't you just stay in that lane? Why look to do more?
1: I go into areas of work or I jump onto projects or I pick up new skills based on a need. And the need at that point was I need something that's going to not be a nine to five job. I need a career and a career that can last me as long as it's going to take me to get my college degree. And I know that that is going to probably be a little bit longer than four years and ended up only being five because I stayed full time. Um, but that filled the need. And the reason I went into hairdressing is actually Rose said, why don't you just go into hairdressing? Like you're you're good at that. You do hair for everyone anyways. It's not your fault that it doesn't take a four-year degree to do hairdressing. Just do it. And I sat with that. Like it really isn't a big deal. It's something that I do anyways. something that I can make money with. And I did very well for seven years yes. while I was doing hair. Um, and I did try to hold on to it for even longer because I enjoyed it. It's creative. I'm a creative person. I get to talk to people. I make good money in, you know, for tips. So it it fit the need that I had at that time, but I outgrew it. I didn't need it anymore. I was teaching kids and, and really the goal from being a young person myself was how do I get involved in a career that's going to help other people? I didn't realize until probably a year and a half into college that helping other people really was just, I wanna help young people. Once I got into teaching and I felt that, I was like, oh, this is my niche. I'm really good at this. Um, This feels comfortable. And I wanna continue that because you're right. a A lot of folks have stories where they just were not given the right information. They were derailed. And I started figuring out that I could help a lot of students avoid that, at least temporarily, and build up skills that were going to help them avoid that in the future.
0: Okay. So you've noted a few times in this episode that you grew up in a low-income background and money was a driver for you to indulge in some of these different skills that you had. You know how to do hair, you know how to draw, and the driver of all that was your socioeconomic status, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, I I grew up in a um, working class family, and the message to me, and I feel like the message to us, especially when uh, we come from immigrant families, is uh, you go to school, you identify what it is that you want to do for a living, and you do that for the rest of your life. So I am here to ask you today, how dare you? (laughs) Coming from a low socioeconomic background.
1: Fight that messaging?
0: Yeah, yeah, like how (laughs) dare you do that? Go ahead, talk to me.
1: Um, I did fight that messaging. It was so stressful. I don't think people understand the pressure that puts on young people when you're like, I've got to find the one thing that's going to, and not the one thing that I like, the one thing that's going to make me money and get me out of this situation, like, what, what is going to be the driving factor? Um, and that's why I looked at engineering and architecture for a little while. They were like, you're good at math. You have to go into a science. Um, you have to make $100,000 or more a year. That's your way out.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and I, I seriously believed that for a long time. And if I've learned anything on my journey, it's that that's such a myth. Like We believe that you need to be one thing. And that's when it comes to a career, that's when it comes to an identity marker, it's okay to shift, it's okay to grow, it's okay to have room for this intersectionality with identity when it comes to your identity as a individual, your identity, your professional identity, there's, there's room for you to be more than one thing.
0: So I kind of dropped this uh, in my question and I didn't ask for you to confirm it. So would you say that socioeconomic status drove these changes?
1: I wanna say it's a split. Um, I wanna say socioeconomic played a role in it but if it was all socioeconomic then I wouldn't have gone into teaching. Let's be beyond, I wouldn't have gone into hairdressing. I would have stayed in the sciences and I would have gone and I would be a very unhappy engineer somewhere making more money than I make now. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a split part of it. Was, you know, you need to go to college and you you need to be in a career, not a job, making money with benefits. That's the socioeconomic drive. But then there's a part of me that's just this change maker and this activist that it's a, it's a part of my brain that I cannot shut off. Yeah. Um, I'm so bothered by injustices and want to help so much that that's what pushed me to go into areas where I was working with people.
0: As we close out here, I'm thinking of this cartoon, Voltrons. I don't know if you know about Voltron. No. All right, I'm aging myself. So Voltron, right? The simple explanation of Volt- Voltron. It was like this robot. And there are different components that came together that made this robot super powerful. And so, um,
1: then yeah, I'm like I'm like Voltron. I'm just gonna keep uh, adding uh, on, adding on, adding on, adding on. I'm gonna keep doing it for the rest of my life, and and I'm gonna struggle with the question like,
0: what do you do or <laughs> who are you? I'm like
1: ah, I got so many pieces. <laughs> yeah.
0: So yeah, and so I was asking, my, I was gonna ask a question in the spirit of of Voltron. How do you embrace these different pieces of yourself, um, and give them the sort of attention that they need? I
1: uh, I think as as I grow, I become more comfortable with understanding that um, different, having different pieces or different identities is a, is a gift. This intersectionality is a gift that makes me really unique. It allows me to draw on my different experiences, my different skills. Um, and I, I really appreciate that. It used to make me feel like I was outcasted, that I didn't fit in anywhere and that I needed to become more like a certain group. Like I needed to pick some of these identities and really you know, run with those and only those. Um, I'm becoming comfortable with knowing that there's not one space that's going to make me feel fully connected. That's gonna make me feel fulfilled. That part of the beauty of who I am is that I've embraced having so many different identities and that with those different identities comes shifts. And those shifts don't make me any less of who I am. I just become a better
0: person. And now after this episode, you're gonna go on YouTube Voltron and be like, oh, okay, I'm Voltron.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It might not be your age. It might be because I really just didn't have cable forever. (laughs)
0: Um, No, no. I mean, trust me, I didn't have cable either. But I lived in the era where, like, if you didn't have cable, you could, like, get to Channel 38 and mess around with the knob and, like, put a hanger on the TV and get a clear enough picture to, like, watch what it was that you wanted to watch. I really wanted to end the conversation with the question I just asked, but I have this burning um, sense here that I need to put this out there. What are some ways that teachers and uh, administrators can do a better job of talking to kids about their identity in relationship to what they want to do long-term for a career?
1: I think the first thing that everyone in education needs to do is to talk less, actually, and to listen more. I think um, I the biggest problems that I find... Um, are, or the cringeworthy conversations are the ones where people just will not shut up. Kids will tell you what they feel, what they think, what they understand, um, what they want. People aren't listening. So we're giving advice based on these presumptions we have of what is going to be best for a child. And a lot of the times we think that because we're adults, and I say we, because I look back at some of the advice that I've given and it's terrible. Um, We think because we've gone through these journeys that we have answers that, that they need from us. And a lot of the times, like we've got some great advice, but it would be better if we just listened. We don't have people in education that are giving students the messaging that it is okay to explore different things and to find the paths that make you feel most comfortable most at home most driven most fulfilled we go all right you're good at math so sit down and listen to the things that you can do with your math skills or you're good at this so sit down and listen to um you know you're good at music sit down and listen to the things that make sense with music instead of listening getting to know a child and then giving them messaging that's going to be empowering for their exploration cuz really they've got to everybody's got to explore and they've got to find it on their own they can have support someone that they turn to and the people that they turn to are going to be the people that listened
0: TT Nessa dropping nuggets thank you so much for your time today and coming on to have this very um, rich Conversation with me about your identity um, and the intersectional nature of your life experiences—it all really came out in this episode—and so I appreciate that.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: No problem. Good luck with your pursuits, and uh, hopefully, my actually uh, my listeners, my audience, should check out your art at give me the website.
1: My website's Janessa J E N N E S S A art.com. Um, you can also find me on Instagram and I have a Facebook page that are the same that Janessa it's an underscore art. And you can take a peek at some of my work, custom pieces, original pieces, got, um, prints and even apparel. Cause I feel like art should be affordable to all. So there's an entry point for you anywhere.
0: I believe the children are the future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride. I couldn't help but pay homage to the late, great Whitney Houston who blessed us with those lyrics and invoke my inner Randy Watson to honor her memory. Randy Watson! How great would it be if we could teach children to embrace the entirety of their being and told them they don't have to settle on or choose one thing? A key idea to consider from this episode is the notion of intersectionality, which is the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual. Institutional racism also comes to mind here. I mean, what do you call it when a majority of students who are of color in a school district receive inadequate guidance around the college admissions process? Until the next episode of In Me, keep reflecting.